This episode of Film Jive is brought to you by Audible.com, the world's largest selection of premium audiobooks and spoken word content with over 150,000 titles to choose from. To sign up for your free 30-day trial, please visit audibletrial.com slash filmjive. Hello and welcome to the Film Jive Podcast. We are recording this episode on July 21st, 2014. My name is Zach. And I'm Andy. This is episode number 73 where we are continuing our look at well-respected filmmakers, lesser known or underappreciated films. And today that's with Charlie Chaplin's final film released in 1967 by Universal Pictures, a Countess from Hong Kong, starring Sophia Loren and Marlon Brando. Uh, I guess I should mention, just before Andy jumps in with a plot synopsis, that I just wanted to apologize for the extended hiatus we took in July. That was entirely my fault. Had some things going on and was without internet for about a week and a half, so we weren't able to do the show. But, um, we're back, so... I guess with that in mind, Andy, would you please read the plot synopsis? I sure will. Uh, leaving Hong Kong after a stopover, an American diplomat discovers a stowaway in a stateroom, the Countess Natasha Alexandra, whose family has fled from Russia. Fearful of losing his job, he tries to keep his new roommate hidden while they both try, unsuccessfully, to keep from falling in love. Alright, so uh, that's really is it for the Countess of <laughs> Hong Kong. Um, it's one hour and 45 minutes of that. Of that. Way too long of a movie, first off. Um, so, Zach, how big of a Chaplin fan are you? And uh, where, does, where do you think this falls in his uh, filmography? Um, okay, tr- I should say that Charlie Chaplin was sort of the first, I guess, filmmaker that I became aware of in the sense that, oh, this is the guy, this guy is directing all of these films himself sort of thing. Okay. So kind of becoming aware of like a filmmaker's body of work. And I remember I used to go to the video store at a giant Eagle and I would always rent out city lights, modern times, uh, the gold rush, some of his short collections. And growing up, I really liked Charlie Chaplin because he also led me to Buster Keaton, Harold Lloyd, and then eventually people like the, the Marx brothers. I will say though that, as I get older, I still love films like City Lights and Modern Times, but there are elements to Charlie Chaplin's approach to filmmaking that I don't care for. And for me, it becomes most apparent in his short films that predated his features, where oftentimes, and this, and Countess from Hong Kong is very guilty of this, where Chaplin's camera just kind of sits in one position. Yeah, he just bolts it down, master shot all the way through. Yeah, I mean, I no guess boot. his philosophy is comedy in the long shot, emotion in the close-up, and that's it. There's very little yeah. in between. His ca- camera hardly moves. It moves a couple of times in this film, but it rarely changes its staging position within a scene. And I well, think... Well, even when we, um, like, well... Because this film essentially takes place in two rooms. And it's almost like we'll leave one of the, like, we'll call them room one and room B, um, room one and room two. So we have a scene in room one. The camera never moves. We go into room two. The camera never moves. Then we go back into room one, and it's back in that same spot initially was in. It's like this movie could have been shot over the course of, like, say, like five days. Or six days, three days in, in set one and three days in set two and never move the camera. Just have the actors act in front of it. Well, he should have just put two cameras in each set connected to two sets and hey, just have them go back did. and forth yeah, and just shoot the whole film. Maybe that's what he did. Um, but in a movie where it has great characters and great content, you know, that are, is such, so endearing and rich, it's kind of excusable that his camera just kind of sits in one place. Unfortunately, I don't really think that's the case in this movie. And, 
I know I said right before we started, I, to a certain extent, I'm still trying to wrap my brain around this film because the bottom line for me is I think it's a very foolish (laughs) movie and it's pretty insignificant in terms of Charlie Chaplin's body of work. But it has some really interesting elements that sort of make it, I guess, a fun film to try and pick apart, I guess. I mean, it, it, it is, without question, a Chaplin film because it contains all of the, the, the comedic set pieces and, like I said, the visual language that is synonymous with all of his silent and sound era films. But I don't think that that necessarily makes it a good film just because it falls in line with everything else that he's done. Um, I guess what I find most frustrating about it is just the absolute indifference and inoffensiveness about everything. It never is attempting to not necessarily push a button, but it just seems perfectly comfortable existing in this mediocre world where it's not going to try to provoke any kind of real thought. It's just such a a blasé effort, not just from Charlie Chaplin, but from, I think, most everyone involved in the film. I would exclude Sophia Loren. Yeah, she was the best part of the film. Yeah. But I don't know. It's just a very underwhelming movie. I will say, I think for both of us, part of what attracted us to talk about this was that there are people and reviews out there that spew just vitriol hate oh yeah that it's beyond horrible yeah and i don't agree with those reviews. no i wouldn't go that far but what i also find so puzzling about that is i don't know how this film could muster such passionate hate or love towards it at all it's just and there's definitely passionate love from you know people like andrew saris francois Truffaut, jack nicholson that absolutely love the film think it's his best film. Jacqueline thought it was his best film. Well, there is some contradiction there, apparently, because I've read that at the time that it was released, he was very defensive towards the film and couldn't believe the critical response to it. But it seems that over time, he kind of revealed. Now, I'll just, I'll just say there's a <clears throat> excerpt, and you have to take this with a grain of salt because of who it's coming from from a Jerry Lewis book where he basically says that during a conversation with Chaplin, he says that, and this is the quote, Chaplin also made no bones of the fact that his last film lacked the essential qualities embodied in his former work. I guess it happens to all of us. He mused, we fall in love with an idea, but sometimes overlook the substance. This was the case when I made Countess from Hong Kong, marvelous actors. How could you not adore Sophia Loren and, Marlon Brando. Nonetheless, the script was thin. It's a regret. Yeah, I mean, the script is definitely thin, and it's completely stretched for its hour and 46-minute runtime. Um, One of the things I really disliked about the film is I thought uh, a lot of the segments really were, uh, almost seemed like they were extended for some reason. The, The elderly woman that's in the one cabin that never leaves... Margaret Rutherford. Yeah. <clears throat> and how different people came to visit her. That scene lasted forever. And I didn't know why it was, why the scene was so long. And there were a couple other comedic scenes like that that just. And that scene, so that long. scene achieves nothing. No, by it the doesn't. Way. Yeah. I, I mean, it's not even. It's not funny. And but it it's not even playing. It's not even really playing yeah. for humor. That's what's so strange about it is that. You would think a scene like this where you have someone like Mark Rutherford and you have these characters who are mistaking Sophia Loren for this woman, that you would play it a little broader. And there's nothing about the performances in that scene. Well, there's also no consequences to it because that's the scene where the ship captain finds out that Sophia Loren is a stowaway and not the sick woman that never leaves her cabin. And nothing ever comes of it. No, because there it ends no up, the captain ends up totally playing into their scheme. Into their, yeah, so, I mean, there's no consequence to it, so who cares? That's the other thing. Every, everyone played into the scheme that they came came across, so I don't know why they kept it so secret through the first hour and 20 minutes of the movie. Everyone just were like, okay, we'll help you. Well, can I ask a question? This was something 
that really bothered me in general is the way that the characters behave. <laughs> Almost makes no sense. I agree because um, now this is just for me, and um, and maybe this is just my personality. But I didn't understand why Marlon Brando's character was so nasty to her through so much of the film. And I didn't get that at all. Like, I never understood why is he being so nasty to her? Why is he so mean to her? What's confusing about that is, is that, yes, it sets his character up in the opening minutes, who's someone that's clearly trapped within a marriage that he doesn't care about, and he's living, he has a very repetitive, colorless career. Yeah. But that immediate response to finding her seems so unjustified because, yes, he has a social standing that would be called into question. But his performance never seems to illustrate that he cares about that social standing. Oh, no, I know. That's, I mean, Brando plays this so aloof that he doesn't care about any of this. I mean, even, but I, I almost don't blame that on him because... He pretty much is, says it throughout the movie that he doesn't like his job, he doesn't like his marriage, he wants to get out of everything. So it's already there, so I don't know if I even blame him for playing it in such a way that he doesn't seem like he cares about anything anyway. No, because I also read something that Chaplin was very puzzled by critics who were calling Brando Wooden, and Chaplin's response was, that's the point. Like he deliberately cast Brando because Brando was an actor who displayed a complete lack of humor on screen, so he was intentionally wooden. Now I read something by Jonathan Rosenbaum who actually made a good point of saying that he wrote a piece that where he revisited the movie and tried to kind of further illustrate what makes it a bad film. It's not really that interesting of a piece, but he does note that he thinks that that's kind of Chaplin covering for the results that came from this experience because that statement completely discounts the performances that Brando shows in something like Guys and Dolls. And I'll even, he doesn't say this, but I'll even add The Tea House of the August Moon, which are both comedies that preceded this film, where I don't think Brando is completely wooden in those roles. I think he has really good comedic timing in well, Guys and Dolls. Well, I say there are moments in this film where it's obvious he's playing a certain scene for a laugh i actually think he is funny at there certain are some points moments where he's funny yeah. i mean i got i wasn't like a laugh out loud but it was a chuckle when they're running from room to room like 90 percent of the movie and there's the knock at the door and for whatever reason he throws his robe open <laughs> i did chuckle at that because i didn't under i didn't understand why he did it it made me start to rethink that because there's this element to his performance where he he's playing it so, as you said, aloof, that you it almost comes off as he doesn't care. And he's phoning it in. But then there are times where he really, I think he gets really into playing up the physical comedy. I mean, I think I told you this when we recorded the last episode that I read an interview with Tippi Hedren that said that the big tension between Brando and Chaplin on the set was that Chaplin would stage a scene and he would basically play each actor, go through the blocking, and then he would just simply turn to the actor and say, okay, now you do it. And Which Brando, really being a method actor, completely despised this way of directing. It didn't bother Lorraine because she wasn't method. She's just more of a technical. And, and clearly she's just playing Chaplin anyway. Like Yeah, because she's the sympathetic character that we're supposed to feel empathy for, which is... Well, tramp. she's quite literally the tramp. Well, that's true, yeah. And even with the oversized pajamas and the hat on her head, I mean, there's moments where he's just... I'm not surprised that there wasn't a scene where she tried to pass off as a guy and drew a mustache on her face or something like well, that. There's like... no way she could have passed for a guy. Well, yeah. This is going to be kind of like an odd thing to talk about. But um, Hudson, the Patrick Cargill character who uh, has to marry uh, Natasha just so she can get into the United States. I, I, the scene where he's undercover is, is horrible and is way too long. And I don't, under, I don't know what he's doing. Well, he wants to consummate the marriage. No, I know that. Know, yeah. But why would that, con why would that like, get her in the mood or anything? I don't know if that was like, his, like, his nightly routine when he gets into bed or what. 
But uh, well, you do know that that role was originally offered to Peter Sellers. On he, well, you know, Peter did you Sellers watch made, that video? No, I didn't, the, no, oh, I didn't, okay, I didn't, yeah. Um, Peter Sellers actually made made that funny. Well, that's what I was thinking. Was he initially approached Peter Sellers, and then he approached another British comedian. They both turned him down, and so Patrick Car Cargill is that what yeah, it is? Or yeah, was then cast because initially all of the peripheral characters were going to be played by big actors so it was going to be this big ensemble and then i don't know if it was budget or just because people were turning him down that he ultimately chose not to do that so that's why you get these weird things where margaret rutherford is showing up for a couple minutes is i think he tried to get that in where he could It, it also makes me wonder if like his son is directly cast because he couldn't get whoever he wanted for that but i mean his son has like one of the main roles so I don't think he's bad in the film. I think no, he's, he's yeah, he's good. He has a scene that I'm not exactly sure what he's trying to do. It's the the seasick scene where he comes in with the cigar. Well, that whole seasick scene was horrible. Is he doing like a Mark, Groucho Marx impression because his posture is suddenly hunched over, and then when there's the knock at the door, he gets up and he's running to the other room and he's like hunched over and he's constantly blowing smoke into everybody's face yeah. i just it was I mean, an odd scene, yeah that whole scene was horrible especially the cam that was the one scene where you had camera movement and it was just rocking back and forth to uh, uh simulate the rocking of a boat and it was i thought it was very amateurishly done and what else is gonna say with the, the hudson character though and this kind of goes for harvey as well and even Og- and really almost all the main main male characters the way that they looked at, I mean, I know this movie was made like 50 years ago, but they're kind of the way that they looked at Sophia Loren or talked about her or something was that there was almost like a creepiness to it. Because Hudson like kept bringing up how he wants to consummate this marriage. This ran throughout the entire, yes, she's, I mean, we talked about it before we even started. She's incredibly good looking and she looks fantastic in this movie, but it was just, I don't know, there was like a Anybody that doesn't know what Sophia Loren looks like, do yourself a favor tonight. <laughs> Hop on off. Google, go to the images tab and just, you know, spend a few minutes there. You'll be glad you did. But like Hudson's constant talking about how basically he wants to have sex with her. I thought was very, very odd. Or, I don't know, it felt odd today. Maybe in 1967 it didn't feel weird. It's such a strange turn for that character to make, especially because his role up until that point in the film is so minimal. It consists of making his bath like, and ordering breakfast. Now suddenly he's been thrust into this situation and... Well, I also thought it was weird because he's he's obviously like, he's Ogden's butler or whatever. He works for Ogden and he has to realize that Ogden's only going to all this trouble for for her because he likes her. So it just seems like out of place for a old-fashioned British butler to not necessarily go against the wishes of his uh, employer, but to vocally make his intentions known to his employer. That's almost like you want to hear classic British butler say to his employer, like, oh, man, your wife's really attractive. I want to sleep with her. Like he does constantly in this film, which I think is weird. Now that you're saying that, I can't believe they've never done that with Alfred. Like, why isn't Alfred say to like Bruce? Oh man, Selena Kyle. How he calls Gordon, he's like, put the the bat signal up. I need to get Bruce out of the house. Yeah, yeah. Vicky's here. Exactly. Well, you know, we. I'm gonna take I, her to I, my Bat Cave. I'll tell you, I've never read every issue of Batman or Detective Comics. It may have happened. I don't, I don't know. I um, wish they need. But to even, do Har- that in the, even the even the Harvey Jeremy character. Irons is Alfred. Oh, should he's, be, gonna, uh, he's gonna do Libertine. it. Libertine. You know, he's gonna do it. Um, even the Harvey character who never was vocal like Hudson about it. There was a way that he like looked at her and kind of dealt with her that I, you could tell what he wanted. Oh yeah, most even his like his uh, motivation to come to the bedroom while they're down at the party. Yeah, it seems like such a strange, strange thing, thing for him it. to do. He's you know, I and just I thought I'd come deliberate. up in here and check on you, make sure you're not in trouble. Yeah, I don't know if that was like all deliberate or what. 
Now, I have a question. This kind of, I guess, ties into what you're saying. Are you familiar with any of the any of the culture that exists in Jersey Shore, the reality TV show? No. Well, there's this thing called they do called Time to Go, and it's when after these guys have brought girls back from the club and they've done what they needed to do, the situation, which is the name of this this character, uh, will go around the house clapping his sands, saying time to go, which actually means, like, you got to get out of the house. And he does this with the other guy's girls as well. He'll come into the room and be like, time to go, time to go. And there are a couple scenes where Brando is always entering rooms, clapping his hands and demanding things. And I wondered if maybe... Wondered this for her to go. <laughs> if if this derived, if Jersey Shore is making oh, a direct big. homage to big, a Countess big from big Hong Countess Kong. from Hong Kong fan. Isn't the, the situation along with Andrew Saris and Truffaut and, and saying that this is uh, Chaplin's best film? Yeah, he wrote a piece about it, actually. <laughs> I thought so. <laughs> it's in his Facebook notes. Yeah, okay. okay. That makes, yeah, I can see that. I can see that. Okay, oh, we'll so put we... a link to that in the show okay. notes. <laughs> That's a good idea. Uh, so we talked about some of the things that were problems with the movie, and there are probably more problems that we could talk about. Uh, was was there anything in it that you thought was well done or that you liked? Okay, I should say, starting with the opening sequence. Yeah. You know, it's a little jarring, the jittery tracking shot at the start, mm-hmm. and then how flat everyone seems to be performing. Yeah, yeah. But then it started to feel so appropriate to me, given the context of the environment that you're in. I will say I love I absolutely love the beginning because there was a there was an awkwardness to it all and like you said like a wooden flatness to the performances that I thought was was it was it seemed right for their situation that they were in. I agree with you and I It's overwhelmingly think, sad, I think. Yeah, too. Yeah. And I think the be- and I think the ending even has like a sadness to it, like a melancholy mm-hmm. uh, even though they're together. And obviously the the um the ending mirrors the beginning. Yes. With, Brando coming in and coming up to her and asking her for a dance and then doing a waltz. And and I thought the music was sad, the, the waltz uh, that they danced to. Those two bookend scenes made me upset that the film wasn't better because I I liked those so much. And I liked the awkwardness and the sense of despair to both scenes that I was like, I think this movie would have been better not a comedy. I Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's... um. There's these series of close-ups in the beginning on these prostitutes. Yeah. And they're not particularly beautiful women. Well, they have, like, kind of unusual makeup on some of them. But within his camera, you can sense how much affection he has for them. And I really appreciated that. And then that scene continues with the sailors and the prostitutes dancing. And there are some actors that look directly into the camera lens. Yeah. Which I, I mean... I love whenever anybody ever does that in a fiction film, not breaking the fourth wall necessarily, but calling attention to the presence of a camera. I mean, when it's done poorly, I think you can tell, and when it's done well, or at least it fits the moment, I do think it adds something to a scene. Um, yeah, so that that is a great introduction to, in understanding where the world that Sophia Loren's character has been inhibiting. Because there is, there is this whole... The refugee scenario, which I don't know if the movie kind of illustrates enough. The way it kind of gets that out of the way is a title card at the start of the film that is very vague. And then there's some dialogue scenes with exposition. But I don't know if it really gives you a strong sense of that situation, I guess, occurring at Hong Kong, in Hong Kong at the time. But the scene at the dance hall is really good at doing that. I was one of the things that you mentioned that you can tell from the scene and possibly even the last scene that you can tell Chaplin has affection for these people, the prostitutes. The women well not, I mean and they they didn't choose to be prostitutes. The just their life situations brought them here. That I think is uh, one of the best things about one of the probably the thing I like most about Charlie Chaplin his silent films at least. He, cre- he creates in his audience a sense of empathy, not sympathy, but empathy, where you feel for these people. You don't feel sorry for them, but you almost understand why they make these certain ch- the choices that they make. And you kind of almost go, go in my 
in when I'm in in their shoes, or if I was in that place, what would I have done? I can't judge this person. And um, there is a line where uh, Brando actually mentions that because uh, his wife, Brando's wife in the movie, Tippi Hedren's character Martha, calls uh, Natasha a prostitute, and Brando remarks that he wonders what Martha's fate would have been if he was in Natasha's situation. And that's and that ends the scene. And to me, that's the only place really where I saw the the humanity or the, that Chaplin would put into his films, where he always will focus on like the the bottom of society. The tramp, you know, is a is a homeless bum. This woman is a prostitute. I mean, the lowest lowest parts of society, and he makes you feel for them. Mm-hmm. He makes you understand their situations. Well, his his thoughts on the movie, he said that, this is a quote for him, It said he said, It's a very sad story, this man who leaves his icicle of a wife for a girl who's a whore. I think the end, where they're dancing, is tragic. Perhaps his love for her is just a passing thing, happens to us all. Yeah. That's why I think it would have been better as not a comedy. Because I think at this point he wasn't funny. And I don't know if he knew how to do comedy anymore, or maybe he didn't know how to do comedy in the sound era. I... Other than The Great Dictator, I haven't seen any of those other sound films. Uh, yeah, I've seen the serial killer one, which I can't, the one that Orson Welles had to do with. Purdue? Yeah, and... Uh, he did Limelight, which... For my I haven't seen, but I'd really like to, because I know Buster Keaton. It's supposed to be great in the movie. And um, The King in New York. King in New York is terrible. Okay. But, you know, City Lights and The Gold Rush, I mean... I just watched The Gold Rush again. It's hard to watch that movie and not tear up. And same thing with City Lights. Aren't there a lot of similarities between this and The Gold Rush, though? Because isn't there a whole scene involving a brothel in The Gold Rush? Well, it's a dance hall. And Chaplin's character is in love with a dance hall woman. But again, I mean, the roles are switched. She, I mean, he's the tramp, so he's homeless, essentially. And she's kind of like a glamorous dance hall girl. So, I mean, it's almost like kind of I guess would be switched in a way where the, the the questionable female is in his situation and the male is in the other situation. So I guess, I mean, you can kind of see like there's some similarities, especially about the romance in a way. But yeah, I don't know if this should have been a comedy. I don't know if the story really lent itself to comedy, especially because in a way it's like almost like a white slavery, you know, sex trade, forcing someone into sex trade thing, which it's kind of hard to find humor in that to begin with. My favorite image in the whole movie, the single moment where I thought visually this is really brilliant, is after she's jumped off the boat and she's soaking wet in a bathing suit and she's sitting on the bed of a tractor trailer Mm -hmm. next to this, either a backhoe or a bulldozer. And it's such a pure image of who her character is in contrast to the environment she's been in for the majority of the film. Like, it's such a just perfect expression of just her isolation sitting next to this like dirty piece of construction equipment it almost also shows like her like situation in life in that she for the past you know i don't know how long she's been in this life in hong kong she hasn't been a person since 14 okay yeah she was with a gangster when she was 14 yeah um she isn't a person she's like a piece of equipment for these men to use well even the way that she um and this is why I think she Sophia Loren is really good because it's a very honest performance. The things that she says, the dialogue that she has, yeah. the way in which she speaks, like she's very direct about the world that she lives in and what she like she is a survivor, like that is yeah. what she does. And I I guess it doesn't what I can appreciate about the movie is it doesn't try to glamorize Oh yeah, not her all. situation as a prostitute, or you know, and she doesn't, you know, she's kind of just like it is what it is, and this is yeah. what I've had to do, and I'm going to con- keep surviving in what whatever way that I can. And I guess to what I wish the movie would explore a little more is the the contrast between that kind of lifestyle and the lifestyle that Brando. I don't think it doesn't enough because it. No, I agree with you. It it, it it's it, it states from the beginning. That Brando is the son of the richest oil man in the world. (laughs) Just so fucking stupid, but whatever. 
So here you have someone who really has never probably had to struggle for anything in his life. Everything has always been given to him. And then you have someone who's never been given anything and always had to work for it. And their dispositions are so completely different. And and there's not – that conflict doesn't really exist, I guess, socially or politically. It's – it's almost it th- that tension between the two of them is always played almost sexually. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of those physical comedy scenes with them running around in rooms and it is just sexual tension because yeah. even what they're saying. I mean, this is something that I guess is kind of interesting as a a sound film. The dialogue is completely disposable throughout the entire film. Like it does yeah. not matter. I kept forgetting the the file that we had was a Spanish audio track and I had to switch it over and <laughs> it I watched really it probably would have been better with the Spanish audio track well I thought about re-watching it with the Spanish on just to see how much I guess how much of the language is communicated in the gesturing of the actors because I feel like that's something that is probably still there just because that's was Chaplin's way of directing because he came from a silent background you can see his limitations as someone that writes dialogue with this film. You could almost align this with The Gold Rush, City Lights, Modern Times, and a film about relationships. In maybe he expresses human emotion better without dialogue, without talking, just with visual cues. And he does it so incredibly well in Gold Rush and City Lights. Like I said, it's hard to watch these films without tearing up. And uh, Never once in this film, even though I thought the beginning and ending were really well done, never once in this film did I ever get as emotionally entwined in either one of these characters as I do in as I do with the tramp. There is an alienating element to the movie, which mm-hmm. I think to some extent has to do with there's kind of a lack of craft here. I mean it's not yeah. it's not as bad as I think people have called this film completely incompetent. And yeah, I wouldn't and it's not, I wouldn't call it yeah. that. It's rough. Yeah. But I also I detected this sort of um, sense of self-awareness throughout the entire movie. It started to feel as if the facades that the characters are putting on in the movie is almost being used to reveal the facade of this being a film in itself. Like it, It seems to constantly be trying to disorient the audience. I mean, the big thing that he does, the gag where he does that the most is the use of the score and how it suddenly becomes diegetic sound coming from the radio in the cabin. And then even I was noticing when we first get onto the boat, there are these series of shots that are just cut so quickly. like, And it just seems so deliberate. And there are even moments where he'll cut from a master to an insert or a, a close-up of a character, and you know, in the master, they're still moving, and in the close-up, they're static. Oh, that's that. I think every time he went to an insert, that was a problem. But that is something that he could easily avoid doing because I'm sure he's got the whole scene in the master. So it's like, why is he doing that then? Why is he making that cut there? You it know, seems I, like I, there has to be something deliberate. I almost it. thought that he was making certain. Like there was one where there were a master where it was uh, Sophia Loren and Marlon Brando and Harvey. Uh, Sydney Chaplin sitting at a table, and Brando is facing, say, more towards Harvey. They cut to the insert, and he's obviously facing more towards Sophia Loren. Then they cut back to the master, and he's facing more towards Harvey again. And in those shots, there's always cont- continuity errors. Yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, his hair is different. Um, one of the big things that I started obsessing about was the staging of furniture, which I was I was discovering that. The furniture is always being moved around. I don't know if it's because it's on a boat and he thinks, like, that's what happens on a boat, or... Since I just watched The Gold Rush, that's in The Gold Rush as well. So is that just his thing, then? I just think he doesn't pay that close attention to continuity, and when the movie's as good as, say, The Gold Rush, you kind of ignore that stuff or you let it go. Because one of the things in The Gold Rush, one of the, you know, uh, when Big Jim sees Chaplin as a a chicken... Mm Mm-hmm. A chaplain hides a knife. There's a knife on the table, and Chaplin hides the knife. And then Chaplin gets back to what he's doing again, and we cut back to Big Jim looking at him, and the knife's there again. Well, that then happens we cut... in this film with the um the cigar. He yeah, throws but... the cigar at tr- ashtray off the table, and then in the next 
master, it's back on the table. Again. Yeah, so I mean, I just don't think he paid that close attention to the continuity. I guess that wasn't as well, big a Well, where's the script one? supervisor? What the fuck? Well, I don't know. Hell, it could be one of his kids, for all I know. <laughs> I don't think he paid that close attention in one of movies as good as his older films. You tend to let that stuff go. And I think when a movie isn't as good, those things will stick out to you more or they'll bother you more because you're not being swept up in the story or the comedy or the pathos or anything like that. It, it, it didn't bother me. I just started thinking, he's doing this on purpose. He's yeah, like trying to fuck with me. Like, why? I don't know if he was, or maybe that's, he's always been doing it. Like, he does that just to, throughout his whole career, just to screw with the, screw with the audience. But it wasn't something that just started in A Countess from Hong Kong. It's in the Gold Rush as well. So I can only imagine if we sat down and we watched, you know, the circus and the kid and on and on and on down the line, it, the same thing would happen. Cool. Cool. <laughs> Is there anything else you wanted to to talk about? I have some some trivia that I thought were kind of amusing. Let me see cuz we I think we've talked about a lot. We talked about the the framing this bland. I thought it looked like a mid-60s sitcom. Well that okay, that that is something I guess to bring up. This movie being made in 1967. That yeah, that actually does Okay, two things I want to bring up with that. In 1967, we have this, and there was the young girl character with the with the radio. Oh my listening god! Listening to the music. Okay, yeah. that same year, 1967, was Roger Corman's The Trip. I think that shows how out of touch Chaplin was with the youth of that day. And I understand he was an elderly man. Well, not I wouldn't say elderly, but he was an older man. Why should he have to be in tune? But I think there was such a big generation gap. In 1967. Well, it's even like what Br the movies that Brando is making at this time oh, yeah, in okay, comparison yeah. to this. Like, it just... Like, I don't even know that when Brando started his career, he was making films that felt this antiquated. Yeah. And, the and Wild I think, One? I mean, come on. I do think that's a problem. It's obviously going to feel dated just because we're watching it now. But it, feel, it also feels like a film that was dated when it came out. I mean... Just because the counterculture had already begun by this point. And I I'm not saying like that he couldn't make a movie like this at that time. It's just... Yeah, I almost want to say that the movie was um, like doomed from the start because he was... Chaplin himself is so from another period that it's almost like the world had left him behind and he couldn't catch up with it in a way. Is there some kind of indication of what when the film takes place is it 1967 in the film or is it i have to think it's 1967 because of the girl the the girl that's listening to the radio is obviously supposed to be listening to modern pop music even though it doesn't sound anything like modern pop music right because even the the dance hall prostitute thing seems like something that would be different by 1967 <laughs> no i agree so i don't know if he's just romanticizing and trying to be more nostalgic with it Okay, he. I'm reading this. Um, this is my song. Is the song that the girl he plays on the radio? I think. Okay, and it's sang by Petula Clark, who was a pop star at that time in mid mid the like sixty five sixty. Well, well, her version of the song is not in the film. Not in the movie. Okay, it's just the orchestration. They eventually took that and she oh, sang okay. over it, and it became a like a popular single or something. But uh, in the Wikipedia entry for this is my song. It says Chaplin saw the film as a throwback to the shipboard romances which were popular in the 1930s. He was determined to have Al Jolson sing the song. Yeah, and then he found out that he was Jolson dead. died and had been dead for 17 years. Which just kind of, I guess, illustrates how clueless he already he was, was yeah. anyway. He's like, let's get Al Jolson for the... Uh, <laughs> Charlie, Al's been dead since For nearly 20 years. <laughs> Damn. No! I can't imagine a world where Al Jolson isn't alive. <laughs> but I also like how that's his go-to singer. Like when he writes a song for a movie in 1967. It's Al Jolson. He was all Al Jolson. Yeah. Send a Western Union to, to Jolson. So I guess he was trying to make a throwback film to the 30s, but I don't think it's supposed to take place in the 30s. One, I mean, the cars that we saw that was carrying the uh, construction equipment wasn't a 30s car. No, mm-mm. 
just from all the visual cues in the film, I have to think that the movie took place in 1967. Yeah, even Honolulu, the architecture, like the hotels and things like that. Oh, definitely the hotel, but yeah, the Hotel Waikiki. Yeah. Yeah, okay, so it had to take place in 1967. Do you think people are sincere when they say that they think this is his best film or one of his best films? You know, when Jack Nicholson says it, yes. When Francois Truffaut says it, no, I think he's being contrarian. Uh, just because that's who he is. What about when Andrew Saris I don't know. says that's, it's that's, the that's... essence of everything he's ever done? I don't know. See, that one kind of throws me. That one throws me. There is um an air of pretension, I think, around a statement like that. I agree with you. Well, it sort of I comes think... off as you see something that no one, that else, no one else does. See, that's, why I, that's what I think about Truffaut when I said he's being contrarian about it. And I'm not saying that Truffaut doesn't like the film. Like, I think it's very possible Truffaut likes the film. Oh, I think it's entirely possible to like this movie. Yeah. I'm not even saying that I completely dislike it. No, I didn't think it was... That's the thing. I didn't think it was horrible. I didn't think it was very good either. There were moments that you and I talked about that were really great, I thought. And it more made me upset that the film wasn't better. But I just can't believe someone can honestly look at accounts from Hong Kong and look at City Lights and say, oh, this film is better than City Lights. I mean, that doesn't even make sense to me. I, I think, for instance, Andrew Saris's comment and that he loves the film and it's everything Chaplin has ever felt. I don't disagree with that comment because I do think it essentially is dealing with all the things that all of Chaplin's films did. Yeah. His other films just dealt with it better for the most part. Yeah. But I feel like that a lot of that positive criticism along those lines is almost treating the film as if it's being made by a first-time filmmaker. Yeah. Or they're trying to be the apologist or something. Yeah. Which, you know, that's fine. I'll apologize for John Carpenter movies all day long. You know, yeah. like I don't. Your four and a half star review too, in the mouth of madness. Yeah, well, I think in the mouth of madness is a great movie. It is. I like the movie a lot, but I don't know if I would do four and a half stars. Well, you know, with with John Carpenter, I'm always probably overrating everything just because I well, love John Carpenter. Films, some of his films you can't overrate. I mean, like The Thing, Assault on Precinct 15. No. Those are impossible to overrate. So, the thing's cool. swag meter is on max. Like it's maxed out. Yeah. Like, there's no. There's no more swag to go. No, there. It's impossible. Well, I mean, really, his. But it's like it's like me rating Escape from L.A. for four and a half. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Although I think that's an underrated film. I agree, and I think it's fun. Yeah, but I wouldn't say that it's everything that Carpenter ever wanted to do in film, like boiled down into one movie. No, but there. For me, and maybe this is where, like with a movie like A Countess from Hong Kong, I'd be more forgiving if Chaplin at least executed genre elements successfully. Oh, I thought you meant you wanted to insert, like, like it, it took in a post new <laughs> No, no, that would be cool, though. And there were sharks around the, yeah, the cruise yeah. ship. and Yeah, stuff like that. Uh, no, but that, like, that is the thing about John Carpenter. Even when his movies aren't very good, he at least has a strong handle on genre and how to execute a film within the structure and well, motifs also, of its genre. Even the worst Carpenter films are going to be well shot. They're going to have uh, tight editing. You know, all those things that... Because Carpenter's such a good craftsman anyway. Yeah, I, I will admit, though, in even though I gave it four and a half, Mouth of Madness, it could have just been the DVD transfer that I watched. It, yeah. It hasn't aged well visually. I think, it's one of his, I think it's one of his least appealing films visually. Yeah. But um, the audio commentary track, it's him and like the... I listen to it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man, it's so boring. Oh, All it's it, brutal. Like, oh, how, how did he like this scene? So uh, what's a 2K? Uh, what's yeah. an 8K? Oh, yeah. oh know, man, but... it is horrible. Why does the cinematographer even have to be there? He's not. He's clearly not interested in doing this. Just it's like Carpenter. Carpenter isn't interested in doing it. No, but his commentary tracks with Kurt Russell are really well, a yeah, lot of fun. Well, yeah, because they're friends and they're talking about like their kids and stuff. <laughs> yeah, you don't think put, him and Gary's kids are friends or whatever? Put the kid that he plays uh, video games with. Carpenter's like a big video game addict. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to make one more statement about In the Mouth of Madness and then okay. move away from it. Even with it being... 
definitively a 90s film. Yeah. There is a classical element to it. You know, all of Carpenter's mm-hmm. films, even though they're very much, a lot of them are very much of the time that they were made, like yeah. his form and his craft is still very, like, oh, mass in a he's classicalism. In love, he's in love with Howard Hawks. I'm curious, actually, within the mouth of madness, how you feel. Carpenter, when that film was coming out and all the press interviews, he said it was a Western. Do you see that? I never saw it as a Western, especially compared to some of his other films. I don't... I don't know. I mean, I... The small town, like, the drifters and the small town thing and the people being against... I don't... I don't know. I don't. Yeah, I don't see I it don't. either, but that and all the press interviews for that movie coming out were... Him saying it's his most Western film. Wow. I, yeah, I don't see it. I mean, I wish he'd make a true Western because how, how much he loves the genre. But Yeah, I just wish he'd make a movie. <laughs> it's really yeah, well. Okay. I like how we're talking about... <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, okay. Getting back to A Countess of Hong Kong to close out the review, there were yeah. some trivias, facts that I yeah, came I across that I thought were kind of amusing. So... According to what I found on the internet, Sophia Loren did not get along with Marlon Brando during the shooting, especially after the day they were doing a love scene, and he commented, did you know you have black hairs up your nostrils? I'm not surprised. I read a quote from her, I wish I could remember it, of her talking about this film, saying uh, she put everything into the film, and she did it all for Chaplin. Because none of it was for Brando. I did it all for Chaplin. And she said that she would happily make another movie with Chaplin. If he asked her to. Yeah. During filming in 1966 at Pinewood Studios, the 77-year-old Chaplin was walking around outside discussing ideas when his foot got caught in a grate and he broke his ankle. It was the first serious injury he ever sustained. Okay. Interesting. In his 1994 autobiography, Brando complained about Chaplin's tendency to blame his son Sidney for the slightest mishap and branded him an egotistical tyrant and the most sadistic man I'd ever met. Now, what do you believe? Do you believe Brando when he says when he says Chaplin was an egotist, or do you believe Sophia Loren's kind of, Chaplin was a great, sweet man? Now, I believe Brando's interpretation of it. Oh, yeah, I do. I mean, well, I'm sure Chaplin treated Sophia Loren different than he treated Brando. Probably. I mean, she's Sophia Loren. Come on. He saw the Google images. He knew what he was getting into. Uh, yeah. Well, she might have been a little too old for him. Oh, yeah. Well, how, his wife is Claire Bloom at this time, right? Yeah, I don't know. I think no, so. He she was a so lot younger. Times. Yeah, I know, but she, he was married so many times, I don't know. So, Claire Bloom was born in 31. She actually was never married to Chaplin, I guess. Oh, no? Because they starred together in Limelight, and they yeah. had a relationship. Yeah, I guess they were just together. He was probably already married, I think. Because I don't think one of his wives he married, and she was like 14 or something. Una O'Neill was his last wife. She was born in 1925, and he was born in 1889. So that tells you how old he was. She was born in 25, and they were married in 1943, so she wasn't even 20 yet. He was married and divorced before Una O'Neill was even born. <laughs> His first marriage was in 1918 to 1920 to Mildred Harris. Una O'Neill wasn't born until four years later. That's kind of weird, I think. Well, anyway. <laughs> he liked him young. Um, he was with a lot of gals. I've always thought Chaplin was probably, for lack of a better term, a turd because of limelight from everything I've read about Limelight and Buster Keaton being in the movie. How uh, all the talk before the film actually came out from people that were seeing it was that Keaton was so great in the movie and uh, Chaplin was so upset so he like edited a lot of Keaton out of the film. Really? I didn't know that. That's what I heard. I mean, I don't know how true that is. Well, I did read something once, though, where it, it kind of came off that Chaplin... He was, like, doing Keaton a favor yeah. by giving him a supporting role in that film. I mean, my feelings has always been... Chaplin does not compare, for me, to, to Buster Keaton. Well, no, like, as a drug, I think Buster... They're, but they're completely different. That's the, I mean, yeah, I know they both made silent film comedies. Yeah. But that's the only way they're similar. Because Chaplin made 
like humanist films. And Buster Keaton made the like kind of like grand spectacle films. So I mean, they're just I even think their humor is different. And like I think Buster Keaton movies are better than Chaplin films, but I'm more emotionally involved in Chaplin's films. I know, like, my wife, for instance, likes the silent Chaplin films a lot because of how emotional they can make a person. Like, you just feel for them so much. Whereas I don't know how much she would get out of... She might think, like, Sherlock Jr. is is neat and it's well-made, but I don't think she would be in it, into it as much as she is as City Lights. I suppose. My feeling, though, with Keaton has always been that there is such determination in his characters that is so easy to relate to. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really true with college. Well, the general as yeah. well. Well, yeah. Seven Chances, his determination yeah. in that film. But that determination, though, I almost think that's more of like a male thing. Maybe. I don't know. And I, uh, I think the way that he does it is more of an... Because it's also physical in his films as well. I mean, it does show off how athletic he is in, say, like, college. And there is, I think, more of, like, a, a male-centric view to it, whereas the, I can see how Chaplin really appeals to females. Because he essentially made romantic comedies, constantly, you know. Sure, that's probably why he was married so many times. Probably. Chaplin well, gotta I, get it. Yeah, I mean, so they are very... Like, I like Harold Lloyd a lot. And, um... I do as well. But, I th again, I think they made different kind of films... Granted, Harold Lloyd wasn't a director, but they made different kind of films. And I know people always want to pit them against each other, like Keaton and Chaplin, and even now Harold Lloyd, because he's becoming more... He seems like he's getting his uh, his due now, more so than he had in the past. But, I, yeah, I don't know how similar they they truly are. To one oh, no, I don't, I don't think they're really that similar, beyond just the genre in which they worked, and that they were making films at the same time. <clears throat> yeah, because... Keaton made films that Chaplin couldn't make, but I think Chaplin made films that Keaton couldn't make. Like, I don't know if Keaton was able to, or even wanted to, make such empathetic films that Chaplin obviously wanted to do. He obviously, Chaplin wanted to make movies about humanity, and I don't think Keaton did, and I don't know if he could, just like I don't think he could have made as technical, grandiose films that as Keaton did, like, so... I don't know. So, uh, Jive Turkeys for a Countess from Hong Kong? I'm giving it two. One and a half. Ooh. I give it two just because there were things about it I did like. Yeah, me too, but there, there's a good hour and 15 minutes in there that just... Did you keep, did you keep checking the time on the film? You watch, you watch it in two, two sittings, though. Yeah, well, in the same day, just I watched broke the first off. 45 minutes and then came back to it a little bit later. But yeah, I kept checking. There wasn't enough there for it to be that long. And the film looked like a sitcom. The sets, I... The movie was... Innovative. I was going to say, the film was like three and a half, cost three and a half million dollars in 1966. It's the biggest budget he's ever had. Yeah, and, and I mean, it's the only film of his that was produced by a major studio, studio yeah. as well. So I don't quite understand why the film looks so cheap. Let's see. Brando probably got a million. Then there was half a million for Brando's catering. Sophia Loren doesn't really have much of a wardrobe, so mm. I don't know. Do you think it's weird that... Those Brando shots of the ocean, those were expensive. Well, I mean, you have to... Those obviously were stock footage shots. I couldn't believe they couldn't even, like, get shots of the ocean that weren't just called from a library. Because I didn't even think they looked like they matched where they would have been at. I don't know. There was just something about them that I was like, I don't, this doesn't even look right. What do you think of the, uh, the, the multicolored pajamas Brando owned, though? I was more <laughs> perplexed by his robes. His floral robes yeah, that like, looked that? like his clothes, the clothing he gives her, it looks like women's clothing yes. anyway. Just really big. Yeah. Yeah, no, I know. That's Brando, though, for you. <laughs> That's true. And how come the dress shop on the ship only had one dress and it was, who would this dress have even fit? Because it was funny, Andy. It okay, was, I was funny. Like, this dress is like gigantic. 
But Brando had pink pajamas. Did you notice that's what after he tore the yellow pajamas? Yeah, yeah. He was in she, pink pajamas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, whereas I don't think that's a big deal. Nineteen sixty seven, that's kinda I think odd for a guy like Brando's character to have a, a, a set of pink pajamas. So now it's time to reveal the winner of June's listener trivia question. Uh, before we do that, Andy, would you please reread June's question and reveal the answer? The original Tahoe or Toho Studios Godzilla film series is divided into three distinct eras. What are the names and corresponding years associated with the three eras? So the answers, the, the, these are just the, the names. The Showa era, so the Heisei era, and the Millennium era. And that was won by David C., who had uh, previously won some clip competitions, it seems. And he's already settled on a movie that he would like for us to discuss. Uh, an Australian film, which in no way can live up to its title, Dogs in Dogs Space. Dogs in Space. It was released in 1986 and starring Michael Hutchins, who... Lead uh, singer of NXS. Yeah, and for Roger Corman fans is Percy Shelley in Frankenstein Unbound. And further, he hung himself in a, an, an erotic auto-fixation thing. Mm. I want to say he was with um, Bob Geldof's wife, because I know Bob Geldof's wife left Bob Geldof for Michael Hutchinson. Hmm. I need you to So thank you, David, as always, for your continued support and participation. So this is going to bring me some to some news regarding the trivia question, and that there won't be trivia questions anymore. Um. Uh, Andy and I have decided that due to the very few listeners that actually participate on a regular basis, which is like two to three at most, uh, that we're just going to do away with the segment for the foreseeable future. In its place will be a broader segment that is just going to be a listener feedback segment that may or may not appear on each episode. That's really entirely dependent on listener participation. Yeah, I think it'd be fun if listeners sent in... Like, if they've seen a Countess from Hong Kong, send in what they think of the film. If they agree with us, disagree. I would like that as well. Also, if you just have any comments at all regarding anything that you've seen, questions, any kind of feedback, ideas for other possible segments, anything you'd like to submit for us to talk about on the show, please send those emails to filmjive at gmail.com, and we'll read them on the corresponding episodes i guess yeah so do you have anything you'd like to say about the uh, trivia question disappearing well i mean they were going to miss out miss out on a good one about chaplin it was going to be the original chaplin films were divided into three distinct <laughs> eras what were the names and corresponding years associated with this you know what the thing is it's probably true though yeah well there's the there's probably the keystone era. yeah keystone and then there's Miles, I don't remember all of the. Let's see if we can find this out. <laughs> no, okay, well that's actually probably what is, would have been true. Hey, did you ever see the um, Richard Attenberg um, Chaplin biopic with Robert Downey Jr.? Yeah, I did. I saw it in came out in, what ninety three, so I probably saw it in ninety four maybe. So it's been twenty years, I guess, since I've seen it. Yeah, uh, I, with, I saw it when I was a child as well, and. Well, you were I don't know that you were a child, I'm just saying. I was but... 10. Okay. Yeah, I, was like, I would have been yes. about 10 when I saw it then, too, so. I don't really remember much about it. I don't. I'd imagine if it was a movie I watched now, I don't know that I'd really. It seems like pretty typical biopic yeah. stuff. Um, Robert Downey Jr. is supposed to be very good in it, though. So, Andy, what are we looking at next episode? Well, you are looking at next episode Snowpiercer. A Korean film from Bong Joon-ho. Joon-ho? I'm horrible at pronouncing things like that. Was I correct when I said that? Yeah, Bong Joon-ho. Mm-hmm. Well, the film is currently in theaters across North America, and it's also available through Video On Demand, DVD, and Blu-ray. Now, you won't be watching this one by yourself, though, will you? No, I have a guest coming Ooh. on from North of America. Oh, my God. A Canadian. Ooh. I can assume it's not like Martin Scorsese. You could make that assumption, yes, he's not, because he's, not, he's Canadian. not Canadian. He's not no. Canadian. Mm-hmm. David Cronenberg? You're getting closer. Wow. Breath Hitman Heart. 
does he hail from the Toronto region at no, all? No, he's, he's from Calgary, but David Cronenberg's from Toronto. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be Cronenberg. I he's going to tell tell us why he would have made a better version of Snowpiercer. Yeah. How Bong Joon-ho doesn't understand trains like he does. <laughs> the, the does has Cronenberg forgot that he was a genre director for a really long time? He seems to hate genre films now. I, I wonder about that sometimes just because of the trajectory that his career has taken. If he is almost ashamed of his genre work because he seems to do everything in his films now to avoid drifting in even a film like cosmopolis that seemed yeah. like it had it was given the framework where he could get more grotesque or genre and he certainly he, didn't did he no not at all he avoided it at all costs which is disappointing so i guess he thinks like his career started in the second half of 1983 with the dead zone which i understand that's a genre film but it's, I guess, a classier genre film than, say, Rabid. Or maybe he feels his career started in 1986 with The Fly. I, the Fly I imagine, hit. yeah. Because The Fly was a big hit, at least. I wonder how he feels about Crash. Oh, I think he really likes Crash. Yeah. I don't like Crash, but I, I think he does. I haven't seen A Dangerous Method. Did you see that? No. Mm-hmm. Oh, wait, yes, I did. That's the was Freud it? movie. Yeah, yeah, was it any Sucks. Other? Well, you don't even remember seeing it. <laughs> What do you think of Cosmopolis? I saw that theatrically. I was, it's okay. I, it's okay. I That's I how it. I thought it was just okay. I do think Robert Pattinson was pretty good in the film. Yeah. I think he's better than a lot of people give him credit for. But. I agree. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did like his one-two punch of the history of violence, Eastern Promises. I did like that. I liked the history of violence then more than I do now. Okay. I'll have to watch it again. I haven't watched it in a while. But man, I really liked how violent it was. It was really, it was really violent. I don't know. At this, at this point. I can't say that I honestly get excited for his yeah, films Matt, anymore. Yeah, Stars, I'm not excited about. And I don't know if that is. It's because John Cusack's in the film. And I hate John Cusack. But, yeah, I don't know. Cronenberg. He's kind of, kind of a turd. Kind of a turd. <laughs> yes, the Snowpiercer is next. I won't be appearing on that one. But uh, I will be on the one after that, which is what? What is our film after? Man's favorite sport, right? Yeah, Howard Hawks movie, which is kind of continuing our. Uh... It's his final studio comedy. I know that because he only made he did two westerns, Rio Lobo, and I think another John Wayne film, and then that was it. Okay, so after Man's favorite sport, he did Red Line Seven Thousand, which is a car racing movie that has James Caan in it. Then he did El Dorado, and then he came back remaking El Dorado with El uh, Rio Lobo. He's like, I liked it so much when I did it a couple years ago, I'm going to do it again. But I guess that's the same thing because he did it Rio Bravo originally anyway. So He really liked that movie. He did. He's like, I'm going to remake the shit out of this film. But I guess if you're a big, like, I love Rio Bravo. It's a great movie. But I guess if you are obsessed with Rio Bravo, if you think it's the greatest movie of all time, I guess you just wants to con- constantly remake it as well because it's Carpenter's favorite film, and he has stated that all of his films are just Rio Bravo. I don't know that I've ever seen Rio Lobo. I've never seen Rio Lobo either. But man, Rio Bravo, it's a hell of a movie. It's a hell of a, a Rio. It is. Well, it just makes you go Bravo, you know? Just do it again. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's do it. Well, let's see. His one, two... Three, four, five, six. So, in his last six films, which would be Rio Bravo to Rio Lobo, half of those movies were Rio Bravo. <laughs> well, it's also, uh, from what I know about Man's Favorite Sport, and I know I've seen it before, yeah. uh, but it's been quite a long time, there are elements that are Bravo. direct you know, remake of Bringing Up Baby. Yeah. He even reuses jokes from Bringing Up Baby oh, okay. in Man's Favorite Sport. So you can listen to Andy on the Stephen Andy Me Batman podcast. Any word on new episodes? No. Coming? No. No. Well, we've been trying to get Steve on this yeah, show. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Proving to be difficult, but hopefully at some point soon Steve will appear on here, and then we can kind of lynch him about where these episodes are. Exactly. Do you think Steve even listens to this show? Do you think he listens to every episode, or? I don't know. Whenever I uh, like. Put him up on Steve and Andy page. He always likes them. 
Hmm. Okay. You can also keep up with Andy's film watching journal on Letterboxd. Yeah, same thing with you. Film Jive can be found at filmjive.wordpress.com, Facebook, Stitcher Radio, and iTunes. And you can get in touch with us by sending your emails to filmjive at gmail.com. Send in some emails for episode 75. If you've seen Man's Favorite Sport, share your thoughts on it. If you have any thoughts on Howard Hawks, Rock Hudson, anything, you know, if you want to write in and tell us what you think of the current slate of summer blockbusters that you've seen, we'll talk about them. I probably haven't seen if you look at the box office. Yeah, that's true. It's been a slow year, so... Yeah, anything you want to write about. It doesn't even have to be movie-related. No. Talk about December-January romances, because that's what I would call a 47- and a 13-year-old. And, and tell your friends. Tell your friends to send an email. Yeah. Go absolutely wild with this. Because, at the very least, it would be nice to get one email for every episode that we could read. Yeah, that'd that would be, be nice. Or if you want us to play a game on air. Tell us the rules of the game, and we'll play the game. Thank you for listening to the Film Jive Podcast. Please tune in next episode, and until next time, keep on jiving.